The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. EJ, I have been covering the NFL uh, for over 10 years at this point. I have never seen a weekend like what we just witnessed. We had uh, an incredible amount of games go down to the wire. We had the greatest comeback in NFL history. We had Mac Jones getting stiff-armed to Narnia on one of the dumbest ways to lose a football game perhaps we have ever seen. It was incredible. I can't wait to talk about it. Jay, roll the intro. EJ, before we get to talking about everything that happened on Saturday and Sunday and also Thursday and also what's about to happen on Monday, we need to talk about what happened uh, today in the news to start this show off because we have some possibly monumental uh, ramifications coming out of Philly. Jalen Hurts, the scuttlebutt is, according to Tom Pelissero, might not be playing this weekend and some people don't seem confident that he's going to be back until the playoffs because they know they're going to be in the playoffs at this point. Like, they're, it's all but guaranteed. Uh, the only question is seeding. And uh, there's speculation that we won't see Jalen Hurts again due to this sprain throwing shoulder until January. It's going to be the Gardner Minshew show until then. That has massive implications for uh, Minnesota and obviously Dallas. I mean, the line shifted like crazy. It went down to, like, Dallas favored by five in ten minutes. Um so that's that's a big impact on the NFC East. It's a big impact on the seeding. Could be a big impact on who ends up going to and winning the Super Bowl. This still bothers him into January. So uh, first things first, your immediate reaction. It's uh, <laughs> about where my, I'm at, too. This, that's this my is, immediate reaction. Got my Balconas going just for this. I'm a little bummed. Uh, I have a Ninkasi Total Domination Northwest IPA uh, from right down in Eugene, and really it's a nod to the NFL's total domination of the weekend, and quite frankly, football's domination of the landscape from now until the Super Bowl, because this is the time of year when football just takes over. There are games, uh, NFL games on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Thursday, there are bowl games at every hour of the day and night from different <laughs> countries and, you know, stadiums you've never played football in and everything else. And there is pretty much football almost 24 seven uh, until we get through the Super Bowl. So total domination. It is my reaction to the Hertz news. Bummer, dude. Uh, I was just talking about the Eagles yesterday. We've talked about them on the podcast for the last couple of weeks. 
they are clicking. We're clicking. Let's just say that at this point on all cylinders. They had everything working. Roster offense was multiple and could go through multiple people. There was no, it was a hydra. There was no real way to stop it. Well, the defense was dominating coaching staff pulling all the right levers, but it was really the drink stirred by Jalen hurts. He has ascended to the point where people were making legitimate questions about whether or not he's the league MVP. And I think he has to be in that mix. Does he win it? Eh, It's a conversation for another podcast, pulling him out of that mix definitely has some impact i like gardner Minshew in short spurts and i think this might be one of those and i Mm -hmm. hope so i hope he can come in and provide that spark for just two three games that'd be great that's exactly why they have him and retained his services is there a downgrade the lines makers already showed you they believe there is it would hard it would be hard not to have a downgrade from the way jalen hurts is playing there are very few other players who you could theoretically insert into that lineup and have it work as well so it is big news it will move some things around we'll have to see how they do in those games and of course how the shoulder responds is the biggest deal uh but my first reaction my gut reaction is ah bummer Man, they've been clicking, and this is a bump in the road. Great teams have to overcome bumps in the road. We'll see how they do or don't. Schematically speaking, I think um, one of the big things this changes with how the Eagles' offense functions, because we know that they have a very, you know, multiple run game that involves Hertz's legs. They can run stuff like QB power and counter bash and all the zone read stuff and draw. And he's a monster in the red zone. All the run game stuff, yeah, that's obviously impacted by having Minshew there and not Hurts. The verticality of their pass game, though, I think is another thing that's going to be affected. Because when you look at, um, like, what are the throws that Jalen Hurts is really good at? A lot of people would say, oh, he's, he's an RPO quarterback, whatever that means. Um, or, you know, <laughs> he, hits a, he hits the deep crosses, and, and he can do all that kind of easy stuff you tee up for him. Yes, but no. Yes, he can do all that stuff. But no, because that's not all he does. And when you look at kind of like the big game-breaking plays that Phillies hit this year, a lot of them are low percentage go balls down the boundary, in particular from the far hash. Far hash meaning, you know, if you're lined up on the left hash, you are throwing it all the way to the right boundary, which is a long way to go, especially if you're trying to drop it in the bucket over the receiver's shoulder on the outside. It's a really, really, really hard throw to make. And Jalen Hurts has been better than anybody else in the league at it this year by far. Like, even just from left hash to right boundary. He's got, like, over triple the yardage than the guy who's next on the list on that one particular throw. He's got, like, 300 yards just on those fades. He is truly magnificent at at just getting explosive plays vertically in the pass game. To the level, I would say, of Joe Burrow last year when he and Jamar and and T were were doing all that kind of stuff. He's been just as good as that. So not only are you losing, you know, the mobility and, you know, the the utility of him in the run game and obviously the leadership it provides, you might be losing a a pretty significant vertical element of your pass game, too. Uh, And it's it's an element that I don't think people give him credit for. So, yeah, this is going to impact Philly. It, are they completely lost without him? No, because I do think Gardner Minshew is a capable backup. And if we know anything about Gardner Minshew, he's going to take his shots down the boundary as well. 
the only question is, will he hit them as frequently and as accurately as Hertz was doing? If he does, they're probably not going to skip a beat. If he falters and they don't have that vertical element, I'm not, I'm not ready to, to have Philly as my lock in, you know, number one seed anymore. It could be, could be a little bit of a question there. I think it changes with Gardner Minshew and what we've seen from him in the past, especially when he comes into a situation, his first couple of games in any situation he's in, his receivers love him because he will give them a chance. If they're one-on-one and covered, he will throw the ball up and say, go get it. Uh, He's not one of those quarterbacks who is shy in many ways, but certainly about those throws of saying, oh, there's a guy there. I don't, I don't want to risk it. He will risk the biscuit. He will toss it up there. And guys like A.J. Brown will go and get it. Like A.J. Brown, physical marvel, big guy, tough, vertical receiver who will win those balls. I think he's going to relish the ability to go beat up on some defensive backs and win those balls. Not every receiver loves that throw. Uh, Devonta Smith can go get it too. He'll do it in a different way. But we're going to see that, and it puts a little bit more onus on those receivers now instead of getting this perfectly placed over-the-shoulder ball from Hertz, He threw another one of those down the right boundary yesterday that was just, I stopped what I was doing, and the bar was like, uh. <laughs> it's not going to be that. He is, Minshew is going to throw those up, but he's it's going to be more 50-50, true sort of 50-50 balls, and it's going to come down to the receivers. Do you want them? Can you go get them? And if they can, we might still see the same result with a very different means to get there. Uh, second little piece of news, which not as impactful, but still impactful over in the AFC. Uh, Cam Robinson likely out for the year with, uh, I think it was a meniscus injury, correct? I, I believe it was meniscus. I don't know um, what part of the knee, but I, I heard knee and not playing, and yeah. I believe for the year, and that's a hiccup for them as well because he's been playing, you and I talked about this pre-show, very solidly, right? Not necessarily spectacular, but definitely not poorly. He has been someone they've counted on, a foundational piece on that line, and especially over the last month, they're clicking. And the last thing you want to do is remove a foundational piece from a team that's really starting to find its stride offensively. He's allowed uh, 29 pressures total this year. Uh, well, 26, depending on the site you're using. One has them at 29, one has them at 26. They kind of chart a little bit differently. So whichever narrative you want to go with, fine, take that. Um, but that's it's not even middle of the road. I would say it's slightly above average in terms of total pressures given up. Um, keep in mind, he does have a quarterback that does tend to hang on to the ball a little bit longer than we like sometimes because he, he knows and believes he can make every single throw. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes Trevor Lawrence will put him into a little bit of a rough spot in terms of giving up pressure. But, um, you know, the fact that he does have a quarterback that's willing to kind of hang in there and fight for his life the fact that he's only given up less than 30 pressures compared to say Dennis Daly, who I wouldn't trust him ever with a seven step drop or either of the chief starting tackles who are just getting absolutely shredded on a week to week basis. He has been an above average at minimum pass protector, solid in the run game. Um, been a, a very, uh, very, as you said, rock solid uh, piece of that offensive line. And for a team that's really trying to make a run here, not just to make the playoffs, but to just win the AFC South outright. Um, that's potentially a big loss. And then moving over Walker Little to left tackle, we'll see how it goes. Um, next man up is, it's easy to say, but when you're talking about a franchise left tackle, 
it's it's tough. It's tough. So we'll we'll see how it goes. We're gonna talk more Jags in a little bit uh, with their insane win over the Cowboys. But uh, before we get to that, we have to uh, kind of revisit the Thursday night NFC West showdown that we did on our live stream, the TNF live stream. Um, and now that we've kind of had some time to digest that game and you know look at not just how it impacted the NFC West but the NFC as a whole and you know how far the Niners can go with Brock Purdy something something really struck me um, and keep in mind I'm working on a Brock Purdy video right now so I've been doing a lot of work on him over the last four days something really struck me with the difference between Jimmy Garoppolo and Brock Purdy and this team's ceiling with Purdy versus Garoppolo it's not necessarily that he's more accurate than Jimmy. It's not necessarily that he's got a better arm or, you know, that he's a quicker decision maker, quicker release. Cause to be honest, like Jimmy has a really quick release and he's, he's fairly accurate, at least in the short to intermediate and he's a good decision maker, all that kind of stuff. It's the fact that he doesn't take as many negative plays because this is an offense that, that really struggles when they're behind the chains in terms of like generating chunks when it's, third and nine third and 12 all that kind of stuff like they they cannot bail themselves bail themselves excuse me out of holes like say the chargers can or the bills or the bengals or even dare i say the jacks that have these freaking nature quarterbacks they can't do that and so i was like what's what's the key ingredient here and it's because of the lack of negative plays if you look at purdy versus garoppolo under pressure this year their passer rating, almost identical. Purdy, 77.6. Garoppolo, 78.4. Their completion percentage, fairly similar, uh, which, again, this is under pressure. This is not normal completion percentage, so these are both good. But 50% for Purdy, 58.3% for Jimmy. I think that's reflected in his extremely quick release. Like, when he gets it out, it is out, and he's accurate with it. However, here's the big difference. Purdy, under pressure, five sacks on 40 dropbacks that are under pressure. That means 12.5% of all pressured dropbacks are converted to sacks. Whereas Jimmy, almost 18% of all of the pressures that he receives were converted to sacks. He had 19 sacks on 107 pressured dropbacks. Those are the negative plays, or rather lack of negative plays that we're seeing from Purdy. Like when there's a free rusher, he avoids them. When the pocket's getting crowded, he gets out of it. He's throwing on the move. Like, he's got a really good sense of when to get out of there. And we even saw that in, uh, against Seattle, you know, during the live stream. And, and unfortunately, the play got called back. But, like, where he fell down on a bootleg and he slipped and he was dead to rights. But he was able to bounce back up, avoid the rush, you know, roll out to his right and find uh, Ray Ray Armstrong. Called back on a legal formation. But just, like, the fact that it was a five-yard penalty and not like an 11-yard loss on a sack because he's athletic enough to get out of that kind of stuff. That's been, I think, the difference here is they're not moving backwards. The passing, relatively the same, but they're not taking really horrendous sacks that they used to. And I think that they're better for it. Yeah, this is a conversation you and I started in the first two games that he played. The first one in relief and it really started to ramp up in volume the first one he started. And it was you and I turning to each other and going, man, like Jimmy eats that ball. Jimmy mm -hmm. eats that play. Jimmy takes that sack. Jimmy, you know, throws that one under pressure, makes a, a bad call because of it. 
and we were saying that four or six times a game, right? Not as many in the first one because he didn't start about four or six times in his his first start in the NFL. We were like, oh, man, like, again, not necessarily as pretty. Velocity is not always the same. Accuracy, definitely not the same in certain areas, but it's, oh, he stepped through that. Oh, he, you know, Oled, uh Joe Tryon Shrinka. Uh, oh, he fell down, got back up, and made a positive play, whether or not it counted. And even four to six of those doesn't sound like a lot, but we say it every week. This is a game of inches. Those are drives not converted. Those are now third and long into a place where the offense struggles more than the offense wins in third and short. So even if it's only a five- or seven-yard gain as opposed to, you know, a five- or seven-yard loss and loss of down, that's sort of a double negative that the Niners' offense doesn't overcome on a regular basis. If he can keep them out of four to six of those per game, it's a couple more drives converted, maybe a couple of more points for each drive. You're talking about a swing of 10 points or 14 points because he just doesn't take those negative plays as often, and he has abilities that Jimmy does not under pressure to be dynamic in that offensive backfield. And that is a huge difference in a league where a lot of the games, as we're going to talk about later in the show, are incredibly tight. And if he's giving them those extra plays, the offense is indeed better because, as you laid out at the front of this segment, the other statistics are relatively the same. There's not a huge drop-off. It's, you know, ballpark the same. This one is very, very different. And it makes a big difference, even if it sounds like only a small percentage of plays. The other part of the offense I want to bring up, and uh, when we were putting together our prize pick slip, because every TNF uh, stream we put together prize pick slips, and we see how close we can get. Sometimes we nail it and we win $500. Sometimes we get literally five yards away, like like we were this time. Um, But we kind of built our slip around the whole narrative when we were doing our both film and statistical analysis going into this was the Seahawks can't stop the run. They still can't stop the run. They're horrible at it. Like even, you know, when they're getting into their bare front stuff, which you think would be able to stop outside zone, they cannot. And meanwhile, the Niners, when they get presented with bare fronts and five man surfaces and all anything within that general realm, they run outside zone into it and they say, we dare you to stop us. And most teams can't. So this was literally setting up for a Christian McCaffrey explosion we both had McCaffrey over on our slips. You went real big with it. Over 116.5 rushing plus receiving. He slaughtered that. Ended up getting 138. And because I think we both believed in the run game mashing these guys, which it did. You know, we took the under on Ayuk uh, at seven targets. He had four, so you're correct on that. Um, we took uh, DK Metcalf, assuming that they were going to have to throw, throw, throw to try to get back into this. We were correct on that. We had over eight and a half targets. He got nine. The one thing we got wrong was uh, was Brock Purdy, and maybe it's us underestimating him again. We took under 205.5. He ended up getting 217, and we took uh, over Jordan Brooks' 10 tackles. He got eight. So we still paid out, and our second-half slips especially, because we, t- we tend to be pretty good in the second-half slips, those paid out as well. So we are positive on the night. Um but we just needed Brock Purdy to like not complete one more pass and we would have made a lot more money on this thing. We missed it by 11 and a half yards on Brock Purdy. So all, all credit to prize picks for setting a very challenging line, right? They, <laughs> they set a perfect line. It was right about where it was going to be, which means they'll get some money on the over, some money on the under. Uh, this is one throw either way, 
right? Mm-hmm. So it's pretty darn close. It didn't fall our way. And the Jordan Brooks thing, he would have mashed because he went out with an injury. Pinched nerve in his neck probably uh, didn't hear the specifics, but that's what it looked like they were working on, what's typically called a stinger. And he had eight tackles before he left, not even two-thirds of the way through the game. So yeah. we had the over-under 10. The chances he gets three more tackles throughout the game if he stays healthy – extremely good so this would have been a a five hit slip it ends up being a three hit slip we replaced the cost of entry um didn't really win anything but we were you know purdy was you know exactly as they thought he would be right in the same neighborhood we just missed the house i think uh the good news is we we analyzed the game correctly we just got a little bit unlucky so we'll try to try to do better this week uh we have uh, the Jaguars, who we've been talking about over and over and over again on TNF this week. It's Jaguars-Jets in quite possibly the most intriguing Jaguars-Jets game I can remember in years. Like many, many years even. Like not even more than five because the last time the Jags were even good was like 2017. I don't think the Jets were even good that year. So it's been a while since Jags-Jets was a, a legitimate like AFC playoff you know, thing like a topic of discussion, but here we are. So uh, come back on Thursday, uh, half hour before kickoff, going right through the end of the game. We're going to break down every aspect uh, of this game as best we can. All the personnel matchups, schematic matchups, put together some more slips and uh, we'll see what, uh, what wacky hijinks Trevor Lawrence gets up to in prime time. But uh, before all that, EJ, we have a wild Saturday and Sunday to recap. So let's get to it with three up. Up number one, EJ, we had a wonderful, beautiful, exhilarating snow game in Buffalo. Uh, The rematch between the Dolphins and Bills was as good as we all hoped it would be. You know, we we thought maybe we'd get some snow during the game, took until the fourth quarter, but uh, as a a native Western New Yorker of your youth, you know when that band comes through, it comes through hard, and it went from a a perfectly clear night to a utterly... (laughs) Like basically a blizzard in about five minutes uh, made some for some very dramatic fourth quarter football. But um, leading up to that point, which is where I think the game turned because Josh Allen, uh, I guess, just needs snow to turn into a superhero and take things over. Leading up to that point, Dolphins had him on the ropes. They really did. Like they, they played a very good football game. And I came away, oddly, a little bit more worried about the bills than when I went in. And it's, it's hard to say that after a loss or after a win, I should say it felt like a loss to me. Uh, It's hard to say that after a win where your quarterback goes super Saiyan and and proves that he's that guy again. But I felt less confident after that game than when I went into it because boy, they have a, they have a a problem stopping the run and it's not just a, Oh, sometimes we have some explosives on weird circumstances. Like, no, this has been a season long problem. If you look at all the runs that this defense is good against, there's kind of a theme that develop where two back stuff, meaning fullback on the field with any combination could be one tight end, two tight ends, no tight ends. Uh, any two back runs, give them problems outside zone gives them problems. Counter gives them problems stuff where they can kind of, like create a gap on the fly by taking a fullback and inserting him where they want to and stuff that hits to the edges. uh, They really, really struggle. 
And it's for a, a variety of reasons, which I'll go over. But the big one, DBs can't tackle. Like DeMar Hamlin, again, again this week. And I feel like we've talked about it multiple times. Missing crucial tackles that give not just five, not just seven, but like 20 extra yards mm-hmm. to Raheem Mostert. Uh, Teron Johnson has struggled to tackle. Um, pretty much any time when they use a fullback to take out, say, Tremaine Edmonds or Matt Milano, and they and they kind of even up the numbers with the linebackers and then make it a one-on-one situation with a DB, teams are winning that. Like, it's not just a Miami thing. Like, every team that's run two back on them and has made it so that a DB has to tackle a running back in space has had success against this defense. And then beyond that, uh, they have a little bit of an Ed Oliver problem as well. All three of Raheem Mostert's explosives, which were on either outside zone uh, or counter, I believe, from two back, they ran right at Ed Oliver on all of them. You know, two of them, um, they just dug him out at the three tech. Like, they didn't even try to run at the bubble. They just ran it at Oliver, and it worked. And then the other one, which was like the first run of the game, Teron Armstead had like the reach block of all reach blocks on him. It was not even close. And so I I came away, as odd as it is to say, less confident in the Bills because all of these teams that actually do run two back and they do run outside zone and they mash it down your throat and they pick out the 290-pound three technique and they say, we're going to make you our bitch for the next 60 minutes. They're all going to be in the playoffs. And I'm a little bit worried about this matchup. And I get it. Josh Allen's amazing. The receiving core is better uh, than it used to be a few weeks ago. But goddamn, EJ, if you can't stop the other team and get them off the field, what good does it do? I, I don't know. I, I get bad vibes. I really do. It's funny because we don't talk about our notes when we write them for these games. And I wrote three notes. And the first one was... Maybe the cold was good for Josh's arm because it looked pretty snappy in this one. But as the flip side of that coin, that led them to being more one-dimensional, which we've talked about for the last month, that it was better when they became more multi-dimensional and they couldn't lean on Josh to do everything. Numbers for that, Josh had 40 passes and 10 QB runs, so 50 plays overall, to only 19 non-QB runs. So Mm -hmm. 50 to 19 that's an imbalance. That's the kind of imbalance we saw when they started to struggle before Josh's arm in- injury, and then they had to balance things out. Seems like he's getting a little bit healthier again. Maybe the cold was good for his arm. We don't know. But it went back to that Josh will just do it. Josh will throw it 40 times, run it 10 times. He's going to take 50 of our you know, 70 plays are going to be Josh, Josh, Josh. And they were on the ropes for the majority of that game, despite him being healthy. The second point I had, Buffalo had better get its run fits in order and quick. They got run on all game long. And most teams will accept giving up some plays in the run so long as they can lock down the explosive passes because they know that leads to a greater chance of them winning. The Bills are giving up explosive runs. They're not just giving up five and seven yard gives and then getting a tackle and maybe extending the drive by one series. No, they're giving up chunks in the run game multiple ways. It's not one thing. You mentioned at least three plays that are working against them with regularity. And then you combine that, you mash it together with the issue of DBs not tackling well. And there's another 15 or 20 yards on the end of some of those runs after contacts made. 
you know, after there was a chance. Demar Hamlin is a hitter. He was a hitter at Pitt. He doesn't wrap up. When he makes contact, sure. Yeah, <laughs> when he makes contact, he's a hitter, but hitters don't wrap up. And wrapping up is a very important skill because it can keep those 15 or 20 yards from happening. And and we mumbled about it. We whispered about this a couple of weeks ago. We were like, mm, Buffalo's getting run on in the middle. We did the same thing about the Hawks, right? Better be able to stop that middle run because if you're giving up 8, 10, 12 on the middle run, they don't need to do anything else. Like That's one of the simpler plays to execute in football and people are executing on Buffalo right now. And then the last note I had was about the dolphins, which we really haven't talked about. Want to talk about them. Tua is just so damn quick with the ball. Like when we say fast processor, I'm not sure that people get that. When we say that he's a, you know, he's a very good ball distributor. He's a very good decision maker and he's very quick in his process. The third quarter TD he had to Tyreek Hill was head snapping in how fast he went from left to right. And I don't care if that first look. I think Tredavious White's head snapped around pretty quick when Tyreek ran by him, too. Yeah. <laughs> that I, wasn't even close. I don't even know that, like, the look left was legitimate, i.e. the first option, or whether it was simply to draw defensive backs to the left. It was so fast and decisive. He was like, left, right, snap, throw. Balls in the air. Tyreek kill. Defensive backs didn't have a chance to rotate. It was just like that much quicker than you see a lot of other quarterbacks process from left to right on the field. And that gives this offense more space, which it breathes on. It feeds on. It's like gasoline to this offense's fire. If he can do things to manipulate people and make lanes, all of those threats that we talk about all the time for the dolphins are going to make hay in those lanes with their yak ability. So, those are my three points for the game. They line up very similarly with with your points. The weather, I was really hoping for it to snow because there's all this snow all over the stadium. We saw pictures of it. Uh, our friends sent us pictures. The guys at Rockpile sent us pictures of them shoveling out the tailgate area and just going for it. Cheers to them. But when the game started, the field was extremely clear. You could tell it was really cold, but the field was green. Everybody's like, I thought this was a snow game. And then the fourth quarter comes the the yard lines start getting covered up you can see all the flurries and the shots it felt much more like a snow game so that was a little bit magical i like that at the end of it um a great game like i don't care which side yeah. you wanted to win this was a great and enjoyable capper it was the last game on a three game saturday the other two games were really in, enjoyable as well um just a Again, the NFL is putting out a great product, and it's not only dominating in just time on the airways right now. The quality is extremely high. One more stat I'll leave you with that I forgot to say. Well, two more stats that I'll leave you with before I got to say. Um, on two back outside zone looks, they're giving up 6.7 yards per carry per pop. On all outside zone looks, regardless of personnel, average depth of tackle from the Bills defense, meaning how far past mm. the line of scrimmage they are making the tackle. I don't want to hear it. It's bad. 5.4 yards. Yeah. It's yeah, that's free. It's that's, horrific. You run two plays. You run two plays. Two run And they plays. won't even touch you till you get a first down. No, you run two run plays, you get a first down. Like on it's average, so bad. you just run two run plays. Uh, quick note about the Miami backs in this game. Yes, the the Buffalo defense was struggling, but Mike McDaniel just kept picking up backs largely off the San Francisco scrap heap, but also he kept Savin Ahmed who scored in this one. And those guys looked 
great. Like Raheem Mostert had some really good games for the 49ers. He looked better than that. He looked exceptional in this game. This is the best game I've ever seen him play. If Josh looked like a superhero, so did Raheem Mostert. So credit to those guys. I mean, again, you don't get to pencil up what the defense across from you is going to do. But if they're not going to play it well, you sure as hell take advantage of it. And he did. Yeah. So I know it's three up. So like we're, we're, we're talking great about Buffalo, but I think we're just so used to talking about how good Josh Allen is. I wanted to acknowledge the the stuff that might trip them up too. So he, we'll, we'll his see. arm's back. I got to say his oh, yeah. arm is back. I think like, the elbow's fine. He ripped some balls uh, in this one that you were like, so his elbows hurt? <laughs> like not anymore. There's 10 guys on the planet that can make that throw healthy. If that's him hurt, like uh yeah, there were some there were some absolute lasers in the snow. Uh, now another just ridiculous arm that I enjoy watching. Like it's become part of my Sunday routine now is every single night I pop open the Jags all 22. Cause I'm like, let's just see what ridiculous shit Trevor Lawrence did today. Uh, this week was no different. I don't think anybody had them beating Dallas and you would be right to think that going into this game. Cause Dallas by virtually every single defensive metric was one of the best defenses in the league. Top 10 and virtually everything. Um, you know, the offense, for the most part, it's been really, really good. Um, This was not supposed to be a Jags win. Every, every film geek like myself, every statistician on Twitter would tell you that this was not supposed to be a Jags win. And yet here we are 40 points overtime, walk off pick six and everything leading up to that um, was just truly a statement from the entirety of Duval County that they're for real. Like this is, it's almost like the only people who believed they could win this game were the actual Jaguars. Cause everybody counted them about myself included, but they showed up and they played a mostly wonderful football game. I will say this, the past defense, hot garbage, can't stop a nosebleed. Their secondary is horrible. Um, but their run defense, they had nine tackles for loss in the run game. They led every NFL defense this week in tackles for loss. Nine. That's a lot. And the Cowboys ran 40 times. And they still averaged less than four yards per carry with everybody. Like, Pollard couldn't crack four. Zeke couldn't crack four. And it wasn't just because, like, oh, we we get an explosive here and then it's, a you know, four tackles for loss in a row. Like, they weren't even giving them explosives. They were just literally tackling them behind the line of scrimmage. The defensive front played great. Secondary is what played awful and still allowed Dak to go wild and CD to go wild. But I mean, the fact that they kind of forced the Cowboys into being a one dimensional offense um, really helped them out and helped them to come back because they were able to get some key stops in the second half by taking away the run game. And, you know, if you can just give Trevor Lawrence a couple extra possessions, he is so hot right now that it's almost a foregone conclusion that he's going to bring you back. Like we've seen some games and some performances where they've been in a hole and Trevor just goes into this like demon mode that I almost it's, it's on the same level as, as Allen and Burrow and Herbert this year. Like he has been that good in the second half. And especially over the last six to seven games, it's been unbelievable. Like you just need to give him a couple extra possessions and it doesn't matter that he's down by three possessions. It almost doesn't matter. Like, he's going to find a way to come back. And I'm just, I'm in awe of him right now. Like, this is what we thought we were getting when they took him first overall. And 
It took a year and a half to get here, but we're here. He's, I, I'm, I'm trying not to get overly excited. So I'm, I'm going to limit my take here. I'm not going to say he's been a top five quarterback, but I'll be damned if I can't name more than six <laughs> that are ahead of him right now. Like he's been at least top seven. And I think that if you let that man into the playoffs, <sighs> everything's on the table, EJ, everything. Like I get it. The defense sucks, but everything's on the table when Trevor Lawrence is there. He has been that damn good over the last two months. Especially late in the game, which you mentioned, when it matters, when it's crunch time, when he has to bring this team back, when they need a score. He's delivered. That is the toughest time for a quarterback to deliver on the football field because defenses are typically stacking against him making exactly the kind of plays he has to make to make those things happen and he's making them anyway so when we talk about heat or we talk about momentum or we talk about success it's in the toughest conditions it's not like he's tearing up vanilla defenses in the first quarter and then he really cools off and he can't do it when he needs to no third and fourth quarter he's been on fire and he's creeping into i'm with you he's creeping into that justin herbert territory of every week there's three or four that you just go, what? Yeah. Yeah. No. That, like, that that slot fade to Kirk down the left sideline, disgusting. Many, Grotesque. Many of his throws <laughs> over the past three weeks are in the whatever category. Like, nobody can do that. And he's doing it under sort of the highest pressure that a quarterback can be subjected to. So this matchup in general had two offensive play callers who were completely in their bag. Kellen Moore and Doug Peterson right now. I mean, people say, oh, Dallas lost. They scored 34 points. Mm -hmm. They scored points in every quarter. They scored, you know, seven and 14 and then six and seven. It's not like the offense fell off in the second half. No, they scored 34 points. That's enough to win in the NFL. It didn't happen for multiple reasons, but Kellen Moore called a great game for the Cowboys on the other side. Again, not having the run game that he's used to he made adjustments and Dak and cd and those guys well mostly cd but Noah brown too made plays in this game kept them in it scored enough points right they were leading late in this game really looked like when trevor fumbled trying to make a little bit extra on what was a great run that this was gonna be dallas's game i thought they were screwed at that point yeah <laughs> so did they and from a team building perspective that moment's really important to talk about because when a guy like Trevor Lawrence or Joe Burrow or Josh Allen is playing at the level they're playing at, teams can become a little bit used to it. They just go, oh, look, there's two minutes left. Trevor will score. Like, he scores every time we do this. And they can almost sort of lay off a bit. This was sort of a mea culpa for Trevor. I was trying to do something extra. I got a nasty hit on the back of my tricep. I coughed it up. I know I shouldn't. I did. I need your help. Right. He had to sort of go to the defense on bended knee and be like, guys, one more possession. You got to get me one more possession. If you get me one more possession, I'll do it. I'll do the thing. But I need you right now. And that's a team thing. That's like a team building thing. And they did and he did. And if whatever noise they make, if they make the postseason, if they go on a run, we will go back to that segment, that sequence and go, mm, that was a big deal. So, he always makes those plays that make your jaw drop, and that's cool, but he got bailed out by the defense. And then Etienne, got to talk about Etienne. Like, he's getting that burst back. 
Mm-hmm. When you have a knee injury, it takes about a year to get the burst back. You was, can it a, cut. was it a knee or a foot? Well, I'll say leg injury, especially for running backs or wide receivers. Or corners, too. Players that need a lot of explosion. Yeah. You don't see that burst. You don't see that, like, really explosive little bit. And he's starting to get that flash that we saw when he was in college. That electric, hey, man, I can just run by guys, right? I can just literally take you. Professional football defenders who are really fast, I can step up and just beat you. And that's coming back, right? And it's really cool because he's been good all year, but in this game a couple of times it's like, nope, they've got angle. They've mm-hmm. absolutely got angle. They're going, oh, he just ran right by him. And that yeah. was the strength of his game in college. And that little bit of burst or explosion or electricity or what a juice, whatever you want to call it, like it's here and it's it's building. And that is a big weapon that Jacksonville and Doug Peterson is leaning on right now. Uh, just for clarity's sake, for the folks at home, it was a left Liz Frank injury for ETN, well, yes. um, which also, honestly, if you talk to a lot of orthopedic surgeons, they'll tell you that Liz Frank, in some ways, is even harder to come back from than ACL yeah. because of the blood flow and all those little foot bones that break oh so easily and all those little tendons that don't get the blood flow to heal exactly correctly. That's a It can be finicky to come back from those, but he looks... Honestly, I, I like him better now than I did at Clemson. And that's yeah, he looks—he looks really complete. But quick nerd history moment: Do you know the derivation of Liz Franck? As in, like, why it's called that? Yes, I assume some French dude. <laughs> you nailed it! It's some French dude. We're done. No, uh, a surgeon in the Napoleonic Wars who first see French. There you go. That's totally yeah. true. First uh, identified and, and categorized the injury uh, for French soldiers who were knocked off their horse and caught a foot in the stirrup. Oh God, that sounds painful. It is it's a terribly shit. painful injury, but the name of the surgeon that first identified and categorized that injury <laughs> was this Franck. Oh, that sounds so painful. I, okay. Note to self. Don't ride horses ever. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, speaking of run game, by the way, uh, not only has ETN been fantastic this year um, and only gotten better, the way they were using Agnew on these little kind of, there was like a, it was a fake counter to ETN. And I, I, I saw the Browns run this under Stefanski with Odell, and we saw the Niners run it, I believe with Debo um, a couple years ago. And they busted this out. You fake counter, and then they would they would pivot Ingram back, and then they released like half the line out um, on on the end around off orbit motion to Agnew, and he's an amazing return man. So basically, this is like let's just set up the equivalent of a punt return, but on offense. And you saw Christian Kirk like hustling and bustling down the field, and he got completely discarded. In but you know he got in in the way enough just to take one guy out, and Agnew got it was like thirty or forty yard gain on it. But just that little change up to give themselves extra explosive plays, so it's not entirely on Trevor and Etn to do everything. That was so huge, and Doug Peterson called an amazing game. And I, I truly do think that if you just let this offense into the playoffs, if they can take down Dallas, they can take down anybody. Like, we saw the Chiefs get taken to OT by the Texans. 
and barely survive them. We've seen the Bills have issues that we just talked about. The Bengals, we've seen them have issues. Like they are not immune from criticism either. They went down mm-hmm. 17 to nothing to a really bad Bucks team and had to have some kind of wonky shit happen for them to get momentum back, which again we're going to talk about in the next segment, but like every AFC team is not flawless. If you let the Jags in, I'm not convinced that they're going to get bounced immediately. I'm really not. Like they're they're dangerous. Did you say? Did you see uh, Doug Peterson pay homage to Kyle Shanahan's little double reverse that he ran on the Thursday night game? The pop no. pass to Kittle. Uh uh-uh. uh They they ran a variation of that. They didn't throw it to the tight end. They threw it back out to the right, but they ran the exact same motion <laughs> off the play. They ran the basically double fake, fake left, fake right, and then you know the 49ers turned and threw it right up the seam to Kittle. Trevor turned and threw it back out to the right. Um, that was Peterson's little, okay, I'll, I'll take this. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to remix it. Like, I love that motion. We're just going to, you know, end up throwing it to a different guy. But I was like, well, looky there. Speaking of copycat league, he broke that out. So these play callers were in their bag, both of them. And Peterson had a sequence. I think it was in the second quarter where that was one of the plays that he ran. There was like four plays in a row where he was just like, circus is on, let's go. I'm going to, I'm going to reach in here and you yeah. know, grab something. We're out six of the and eight. Who cares? <laughs> I'm, I am on a heater. Let's just go. And the, the runs to Agnew were tremendous. It's a fun team to watch right now. And that's probably what I'm happiest about for Duval fans. Cause like last year's team, it was just not fun really in any way. This team is legit fun, whether or not they win. I can't believe Urban Meyer almost ruined this man's career. Like, we dodged a bullet as NFL fans. 100%. We dodged a bullet. Uh, all right, let's talk about the Bengals for three up number three. We mentioned that they are they are not flawless. They did go down 17 nothing in this game because everything that, that could have gone wrong for them early went wrong. You had an early interception off a tip. Um, you had a really nice simulated pressure in front of, like, a – uh, a cover three look by Levante David that forced a sack fumble. Uh, they did get it back, but still, that's a big play. And Carlton Davis was having the game of his life against Jamar Chase in this one. Um, might be the best I've ever seen a corner play against Jamar Chase, if, to be perfectly honest. Only led three catches against him in man, which is, that's that's a lot, uh, or not a lot. That's the opposite of a lot. That's not a many <laughs> by Jamar Chase's standard. And then on the Tampa side, you know, the run game early on was efficient. They were hitting all these uh, all these little, like, play-action glances over the middle because all the linebackers were sucking up like crazy. They were blitzing like crazy. All these voids over the middle that Brady was hitting over and over and over again. Mike Evans was feasting. And you look up, and, and they're up by three possessions. And what I found fascinating about this game, and this is the strength of the Bengals, and it's why this game is in three up, not three down, is if you just crack the door, if you give them an inch, they will take a mile. And about 143 left in the second quarter, Tampa had an 87% chance to win the game. By early on in the fourth quarter, the Bengals had a 97% chance to win the game. That happened in a span of about 17 clock minutes because in five consecutive possessions at the start of the second half, you had Tampa botching a fake punt, You had an interception on a bad ball from Brady against kind of a bluffed cover zero look where they they dropped out of it and got the uh, interception. You had a sack fumble because 
something very unbrady like as Logan Wilson was wrapping around on kind of like a three-man game. You had Mike Evans breaking wide open on the crossing route against a middle field closed structure. This is the exact route they want against the exact coverage. Brady dropped his eyes, which he never does. He dropped his eyes and he ate the sack when he had probably a 30-40 yard gain on the table there. Um, but they got the sack fumble on him, picked up the ball again in the red zone. Then you had a Leonard Fournette fumble on the very next possession. And then you had another Brady interception when they got even more pressure on him and hit him as he threw it. Five consecutive turnovers. And since he scored and scored again and scored again and scored again, like they, they you give them an inch and they will take 10 miles. Like you can't make mistakes against them. Like when you're up 17, nothing, you got to step on the net. Cause if you don't, Joe Burrow will end you. And he ended them brutally. We talk about the offense a lot, and we talk about Joe Burrow a lot. We talk about Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and with good reason. Those guys typically power this team. The defense needs a lot of love here. Lou Anarumo's defense, in specific, needs a lot of love here because they led this turnaround, that period in the third quarter. They snuffed out what was a very efficient, if not sort of deadly, only 17 points in the first half, but a very efficient Bucks attack. And Mike Evans was having game of his life in the first half. Well, not the game of his life because he had a lot of great games. He was having <laughs> a pretty good one, though. <laughs> a classic Mike Evans game. Let's he was dominating the corners. He was catching all the one on one balls and, and looking solid doing it. Like super confident. Regular for him. Again, a regular classic Mike Evans game, which is a Hall of Fame wide receiver playing at his level. Then the defense steps in. Eh, there were a couple of fluky things that happened too, but the defense applied that pressure to Brady to get the interception. The defense, you know, was in there hitting and, and you know, jumping on fumbles and whatever else. And they handed Burrow the ball back. Not only did they give him extra possessions, they gave him short field possessions. Like three of those five were in the Bucks' end. And if you think that, you know, Joe Burrow's going to take over at your, your 40 or your 35 – and not throw some extra nails in your coffin, you're kidding yourself. You've been watching a different guy since maybe never. He's always been that guy. So this defense, Bengals have not given up a 300-yard passing game this season mm -hmm. to anybody. So it's not like this is a new thing for them. Strangely enough, Brady's the first guy that got over 300. Barely. He got 312, <laughs> and he got yeah. 12 in garbage time. So I'm not, you know, I will count it. It'll go down the record books that, yes, they did give up a 300-yard passer. It wasn't in meaningful play. This is a defense that has been very good, even better against the run since DJ Reader got back and really balanced that out for them. But they've been great against the pass all year. No 300-yard passers against them. Um, and this, they need a lot of credit, them and special teams, because there's a punt late in the game, they pin the Bucks on like the two on a coffin corner, classic coffin corner punt. So defense and special teams really handed this back, just like we talked about the Jags defense handing back Trevor another possession in the Jags game. Defense said, okay, we got him. We stopped him. We blunted him a bunch of times. Here you go, Joe. Do your thing. And Joe and the offense happily did that and piled on him by the end of the game. There was garbage time, again, from – you know, trailing badly in the first half to midway through the fourth quarter, like, yeah, Brady, get your yards. We don't care. Game's over. That all happened because of defense and special teams keying it off in the third quarter. 
The only uh, Bucks note I have, uh, besides Mike Evans just doing Mike Evans things, which is amazing, and please do enjoy that while you can watch it because that was a command performance, is Kate Otten's heating up. 11 catches in the last three weeks. Only had one in this one. So that means, you know, 10 catches in the previous two weeks. Somebody we talked about as being a value pick, as sort of better than their status in the draft, he's rounding in form. He's a very good blocker. He's a two-way tight end. Uh, you're going to see more from Kate Otten as this as this goes on. Didn't play a huge factor in this one, but over the last three weeks, really sort of losing those rookie floaties and, and holding his own as sort of TE1 in the Bucks offense, and that's going to continue for some time. This has been a very underrated – not – not by us. We we said going into the draft, this was going to be a really deep tight end class. But you got Chick Conquo making plays every week. Kate Otten's come on. Bellinger over in New York, uh, they took in the fourth round, was like their TE1 from the day training camp started. They they love him over there. Um, Jelani Woods making plays this week. Like, pretty damn good tight end class. Pretty yep. damn good. Uh, one last note of the Bengals. They play Buffalo in a couple weeks. They got the Patriots this week. Buffalo after that. If they beat Buffalo... They move up to the two seed, and they need one loss from the Chiefs over the next three weeks. Just one team to beat them. And they take the one seed, and the playoffs will run through Cincinnati. It's not an entirely implausible scenario, even though Mahomes doesn't really lose games this late in the year. But, boy, they tried to against Houston. So if Seattle can pull this thing off, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Bengals might get the first seed after all. Um, all right, let's talk about <laughs> – I, I struggle saying it should be in two down, but at the same time, each team had, had pretty rough halves. But, uh, yes, it's time to talk about Colts, Vikings, and the greatest comeback in NFL history starting off two down. All right, uh, like I mentioned, I struggled – having this in two down but you sold me on it in that it's kind of a split two down because each team uh had themselves a horrifically bad half and each team had a half where they gave up over 30 points uh the first half being the the vikings and the second half being the colts it was the greatest comeback of all time but at the same time you got to go down 33 nothing to make that happen so uh it was a a very 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 rough uh first two quarters for the vikings and an even rougher second two quarters for the Colts. My main takeaway from this game, well, there's a lot of takeaways. <laughs> My main schematic takeaway is going to this game, I put out a film room talking about how the Vikings defense was just ridiculously bad, right? 32nd in yards, 32nd in pass, 24th in points given up, which was like on the high end of all their metrics, like the best they could hope for was 24th in the league, right? And it was it was really bad. Like schematically speaking, you know they they keep relying on all these predictable quarter quarter half coverages and quarters, and they spend all this time in middle field open looks with their corners sagging off seven to ten yards, and they're way too stiff to keep up. Cam Dantzler can't do that. Patrick Peterson can't do that. Um, they drafted some young kids we like who unfortunately have gotten hurt, and so the the guys they're left with do not match the physical skill set necessary to run that scheme beyond the fact that they were just entirely too predictable and they just wouldn't call middle field closed structures, which is still to this day, the meta of the NFL is a lot of cover three, a lot of cover one, like majority of the time you're closing off the middle of the field. They weren't doing that. 
until week 15. In the first 14 weeks of the season, they called. Um, they weren't doing that until week 15. In the first 14 weeks of the season, they called uh, cover one, again, less than 11% of the time, and total middle field coverages, middle field closed coverages, excuse me, which is cover one plus cover three. Their total was 40.5%. That is incredibly low. Like you look at, at some defenses that are like 70%, 70. On, on average, right? They were at 40. Just they refused to, to cover the middle of the field and they paid for it dearly. In this game, for a team that never calls man coverage, in the first half, they were 33%, which is like, oh, they gave up 33 points. Okay, well, they field goal, field goal, field goal, field goal. They weren't giving up touchdowns. They were giving up field goals on like five out of six possessions. They held them to field goals when normally they would have given up touchdowns. They're lucky they, in a normal (laughs) game, they would have been down like 50 nothing, right? So... It was better than it could have been because they were playing more man coverage and they, were, they weren't they were just giving up free shit in the red zone. You get to the second half, they called even more man coverage. They called it 40.6% of the time. They're like, screw it. We are really going to lean into this. We're going to call man. We're going to basically be Wink Martindale, right? We're going to be the yeah. Giants defense here. We're going to call man 40% of the time. We're going to call cover three 28% of the time. And we're going to be on that like 70% meta middle field closed coverage shit and we're gonna see how that works and it worked they held him over and over and over again and they clawed their way back and obviously they got some help from the colts being the colts but the only reason they were even able to win this game is because ed donatel to his credit completely changed the defense they called more man coverage than ever they called more cover three than ever and it fucking worked they were able to keep them from completely blowing them out and only partially blowing them out. And I think, <laughs> honestly, I came away more impressed with the Vikings in this game than at any other point this year. Not because of the comeback, but because the defense held enough to give them a chance to come back. And that's a that's a big thing to me. I look at this Vikings team way different than I did last week. Only in the second half. And I know they called it more in the first half, but I'm sorry. If you're down 33-0 to in any NFL football game, you lose. And that's ever except for this one. <laughs> so <laughs> To be fair, there was a special teams touchdown. There's a defense. It is, it is the extreme outlier of NFL results. In fact, the only one, the greatest NFL comeback in history, and there are layers to this one. They take the record from former Indianapolis head coach, Frank Reich, who was also previously the backup quarterback for the Bills when they beat the Houston Oilers and overcame a 32-point deficit. So 33 points is the biggest one, but you don't go down zero to 33 without doing a lot of bad shit. Yeah. And you never, except for this game, come back. So it is a tale of two halves. The Colts in the first half put together one of the most surprising performances of the season. They put up 33, which has not been their MO, and they hold the Vikings to zero, which has not been the Vikings MO either. The Vikings can score. Right, We talk about Kirk being hot and Kirk not being hot, but even when he's not hot, they put up points. They just don't put up as many points or enough points to win because, again, that defense has been giving up a lot. So 33-0, and zero, 
was one of the most surprising results of the season uh, for any team, but it was put up by the Colts in the first half, and this one looked over. In fact, I said, nah, this one's over. I, there's no way they come back. And statistically speaking, I was, was correct. correct. <laughs> However, the NFL is not about statistics. It's about on the field on any given Sunday. And then the Viking, the, the script completely flips at halftime. And the Vikings come out and they start to get chances and the Colts come out and they start to falter. So this is literally two sides of the coin. Colts get the plus side of the shiny side of the coin in the first half. The Vikings obviously get it for coming back, overcoming the largest deficit ever and winning the game in the second half. But each of them, each team had the other ugly side, the bottom side of that coin, the dark side that neither one wants to look at. Like, we shouldn't have gone down 33-0 to for the Vikings and the Colts. We should have been able to hold 33-0, to and they didn't. Um, it's amazing when that turn happens within a game. Normally, it happens week to week. You know, a team blows a team out, and then they get a 50-burger put on them the next week, and it's like, what happened? No, this happened literally within the three-hour period of the football game, and that in itself is extremely rare. So when we say two down, it's Vikings in the first half and Colts in the second. Uh, one more note on this game. There's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, Jeff Saturday – being kept on as the permanent head coach for this team and can we stop with that now like you can't give up a 33 point cushion and and get the job you can't especially because this is like there have been multiple games this year that they have lost actively because of his clock management and decision making and high leverage downs i can't i can't sign off on that i really can't i, I love him as a guy great analyst phenomenal on tv wonderful human being how can you lose a 33 point cushion and expect to get the job you just can't so D'Amico ryan's come on down bud <laughs> it's yours for the taking cha-ching uh, all right oh huh did, did you see the stat speaking of coaches moving on did you see this that the nfl is going to report at the next nfl owners meeting to the owners that nfl teams have spent x million dollars in the last five years on coaches and front office staff that have moved on can you name the number last five years coaches and front office staff that have moved on how many millions let's play prices right with this sucker at least a hundred i'm gonna say 200 million is it more 300 million 400 million? You're halfway there. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> 800 million dollars? 5 years. NFL teams combined have spent 800 million dollars on head coaches and front office personnel that have moved on. What? I mean, do you know I do. You know what we can buy for $800 million? <laughs> you know what we could buy for one one-hundredth of that? Anything ever. I, I mean, eight I million bucks. We could have that. ourselves a hell of a podcast, folks, if we had an $8 million budget. $800 million over the last five years for the NFL teams combined. Head coaches and front office staff that have moved on. That's, oh my God. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. 
these people are too damn rich. That's a <laughs> they lot can, they of can cash. piss away $800 million and not care. Yeah, on, on people that aren't working for them anymore. So oh, pretty, pretty crazy stat when you start to think about, you know, Reich and Rule and just everybody, right? And whether or not you keep a Jeff Saturday on, um, all that. Obviously, he has a different status as an interim head coach, but still, it was a staggering number. I've had most people guess. The, the highest I've had somebody guess is about five. And they, they, that was, you could tell it was a wild ass guess. It was just a wag. They were like 500 million. And I was like, well, it's almost two thirds of it. They were like, what? So it's, it does bring that reaction because it is a tremendous amount of cash. Well, Matt rule, wherever you are, good for you, sir. Oh yeah. Grab the bag. Secure the bag. (laughs) Uh, All right. Two down number two, something possibly even more disgusting than wasting $800 billion. Uh, NFL officiating this week. We had tremendous football on the field. Um, so many exciting storylines, so many exciting games. Officiating got in the way yeah. way, way, way too much. Like, even in the Vikings game, like, honestly, it was even harder for them to come back than it should have been because they had two touchdowns taken away. Mm-hmm. Like, it, they were playing on hard mode and still made the comeback. That's how poorly the Colts played in the second half. And then, you know, the headliner, maybe, arguably, because <laughs> they didn't win. <laughs> Uh, the Washington Commanders, you know, not only did you have Terry McLaurin, who at least to me, like obviously there's going to be conflicting stories out there. At least to me, it looked like Terry looked at the official and, you know, asked him, am I good? And the official kind of pointed. And I don't know if that was a signal of like, you're not good. Uh, Terry says that, that he told him he was fine. And you kind of see him scooch up a little bit and then give a little thumbs up. And it, McLaurin was under the impression that he was fine and it was not going to be an illegal formation and that he was on and the tackle was covered. And then, you know, Brian Robinson scores a potential, if you include the potential two-point conversion, a game-tying touchdown in the last minute of the game. McLaurin being on or off literally did not impact the play whatsoever, right? He's like 20 yards away. And boom, out comes the flag, take it away. Okay, it's horrible, fine, whatever. It's not fine, but it's horrible. Let's let's move on. <laughs> Fourth down, and uh, Darnay Holmes absolutely mugs a commander's receiver in the end zone. Uncalled pass interference. Should have been pass interference. Game over. That whole sequence in Sunday Night Football, the most watched event of the week between two teams that are contending for playoff spots in the biggest markets in the nation, and all we're talking about is how the officials may or may not have robbed one of the teams competing. That's not good for the league. Mm. And to be honest, if the Vikings didn't win that game, all we would have been talking about is how they should have had the biggest comeback in league history, but got robbed because officials made inexcusable calls and took two touchdowns away from them. And that's just two games. There was questionable calls in every single game, but those are the two that that most people saw. I, I, I know nothing's going to happen to these guys, but something needs to happen. Like, there needs to be suspensions. or I don't even know if you're allowed to find refs, if the union even allows that. But, like, there needs to be some accountability here. Because one game was almost decided by terrible officiating. And one other game was decided by terrible officiating. And the league cannot stand for this. They really can't. There's, as, as, as weird as it is to say, there's too much money on the line in Vegas for this to be allowed because people are getting screwed. And when you fuck with people's money, bad things happen. It's true. And 
the league, if it cared about these kind of things, which it does not yet, it is not loud enough or painful enough for the NFL to care to move, so they won't. Let's be clear about that. Nothing will be done overtly. Some things may be done behind the scenes as they typically are, but this is something that the league has kept strongly in pocket, right? They, uh, the, you, you can't criticize the officials if you're a coach. You can send in your letters on Monday, and they can say literally, yes, we made the wrong call, and that's the end of it. There's no remediation. There's no, and then what? There's none. This is the league saying, mm-hmm, accidents happen. And they do it every week, and yet they've done nothing. If the league wanted to do something, which they clearly don't, they would establish a pool of officials, maybe a third the size of the acting official pool. And there would be relegation, just like there is in soccer. You get too many demerits. You get too many calls that were clearly wrong that we had to send an apology letter for or acknowledge an apology letter about. And we say, nope, that was wrong, should have been the other way, which the NFL regularly says to teams, although nothing happens. They do indeed say, yep, should have gone the other way. You get too many of those on your records, you're relegated out of the active official pool. You go back to the sort of practice squad. And you can prove yourself and, and get, you know, <laughs> and you re-elevated. don't get paid. That's yeah. the thing. You don't get paid. You get re-elevated, but those pool of you know officials get the chance to be elevated and then they too are subject to the very same grading system and you blow too many calls in big games you call the wrong thing you don't get to call it anymore not in the biggest league in the world because there is too much riding on it there are too many fortunes uh and by fortunes i don't mean money i mean your fortunes in life of coaching staffs players analysts who did everybody attached to a team if there is regime change which happens because of wins and losses which happen because of officiating decisions at some points not every game is decided by the officials but a few of them in prime time are and that's too many um, we saw a terrible run right before the postseason at the end of last year. Jerome Boger was brought into sharp focus because <sighs> he had say his name in front of my presence, EJ. Multiple weeks of blown calls, and he has retired. He has moved on, which, again, <laughs> is a very in-pocket way of handling this. The NFL needs some more clarity about this, and they need some sense of action. They choose not to because it allows them control of the game. Let's be very honest about why that happens. So if it gets loud enough or nasty enough, or as you said, you mess with enough people's money, change will come, but not before then. Let's not be um, in any way sort of infantile about this. Like It ain't showing up until somebody whips their ass, and at that point, maybe. Just I, I think back to, to Tony Carrente. You talk about forced retirements. Tony Carrente you know, shoving his ass into Cassius Marsh and like doing the most egregious baiting for a flag ever. That's on top of Tony Carrente just being a shitty ref in general. And like all he was notorious for calling those like in the grasp sacks where like, you know, somebody just gets their arm on a quarterback and he would flag it dead. Meanwhile, the quarterback's running around like, bro, I'm trying to throw the ball. Like it happened to the Bears, happened to the Texans. Like he was just, he was bad. And then all of a sudden, on a primetime game, like, you done messed up, Tony. <laughs> you, you 
you made it personal in a primetime game, and all of a sudden your retirement gets forced. Like, I'm, th- these officials, when the entire country is watching, they need to know we're not there to see them. And if yeah. we see you too much for the wrong reason, the league office will do something about it eventually. It'll take longer than we want it to, but they'll do something about it eventually. Uh, all right. That's my anti-official rant for the year. I only get one a year, and that's it. But, do uh, we? Do you get fined now? I'm just here so I don't get fined, DJ. That's right. That. That's right. Uh, okay. Let's go to some greener pastures now, because we have something uh, marginally more exciting to talk about in one fun. One fun for today to kind of cap off this uh, 321 section of the pod. We kind of alluded to it throughout talking about all these games, but in general, I would say this is the closest, most exciting groups or group of fourth quarters that we've had, not just this season, but maybe any season that I can remember. We had three games uh, that went to overtime. We had five games that were within one score and came down to the wire. We had, uh, you know, obviously the greatest comeback in NFL history. We had the Texans almost pulling off the most ridiculous upset of the Chiefs of the year. When you look at, like, point spread, this is arguably the worst team in the league going against arguably the best, and they took them to the wire. And if they didn't fumble the ball away, God, they could have done it, DJ, and it would have been hilarious. But whatever, I'm not bitter. Um, you know, we had a tipped interception that the Jags returned. But perhaps all of that pales in comparison to what happened in in Las Vegas, EJ. Um, I don't even know how to really voice my reaction to this because I am equally horrified by Ramondre Stevenson and Jacoby Myers and Mac Jones and Bill Belichick all at the same time. And I truly don't know who to blame more. Ramondre, for starters... Bro, they're calling a run play to get down to go to overtime. I get it. You got a chunk. But if you're not called to lateral it on like any sort of hook and ladder type situation, don't do it. Jacoby Myers, when you get an unexpected lateral, don't keep the chain going and throw it to your quarterback who after the game, he said, oh, Mac looked open. What's he going to do with it? Is Mac going to run 50 yards no. for a touchdown with nobody behind him to ladder it all? Like, you're, just, you're setting your guy up to get killed. And then Mac, you got to make a tackle, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, man. I'm sorry. You, you do. Like, I get it. Chandler Jones is a lot bigger than you, but you got to make the tackle. Game's on the line. Season's on the line. If you got to just nibble his ankles to death whatever you got to do you can't get dribbled off the turf like a basketball like that you're a professional athlete you got to make the tackle and then bill belichick i partially blame him for this because he's kept on matt patricia this entire year and planned going into the year to have matt patricia be his offensive coordinator with absolutely zero experience as an offensive play caller he is the most incredible downgrade from josh mcdaniels as an offensive coordinator that i think you can possibly have and it led to such a horrific offensive performance this year and this game that that final play even mattered. Like, I'm sorry, the Raiders are not good this year, and if the Patriots had a more competent offense, this thing would have been completely wrapped up by, like, middle of the third quarter. 
and this whole like last second touchdown, were his toes in, were his toes out, you know, the, the, the fumble that was returned, none of that shit would have mattered if Mac Jones had a competent enough offense to the point where he's not throwing like, what was it, like 40%, something like that. Like, it, and it's not even all Mac Jones' fault. Like, I get it, he hasn't been playing super well this year, but in this system, how could he? We've seen what he looks like in a really good system under Josh McDaniels. They were averaging 27 points a game. They were like a top six or seven scoring offense with Josh McDaniels last year and largely the same personnel. It's not even that big of a difference this year. But when you have Matt Patricia, who is not good at his job, to say it kindly, all of a sudden this team is so incompetent offensively that they even set themselves up to lose these kind of games in the first place. So I know this sounds very negative for one fun. It's fun just because it happened and it's ridiculous. But at the same time, I equally distribute blame between Ramondre, Jacoby, Mac, and Belichick for keeping Matt Patricia on in the first place. Tear it all down. I'm, I'm over it, EJ. I'm, I'm, I'm beyond over the 2022 Patriots. I had a thought overnight. And I hate to reference them because, in general, I think they're one of the worst organizations going. But the NCAA hmm. has a phrase when they hand out fines or death penalties to programs, athletic programs. And one of the key phrases that you want to avoid if you are an NCAA athletic program is lack of institutional control. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it feels like Bill Belichick has a lack of institutional control on the Patriots. And the, the thought that brought this into sharp relief for me was, can you imagine Julian Edelman throwing that ball? No. Julian, no. Wes, no. Randy, no. Gronk. Maybe I I started to go through the list as well. And it is so uncharacteristic. Like this shit show that occurred on the final play is so anti Bill's entire legacy of sound fundamentals. You know, do your job, right? That's the Patriots model. They slap before they go out to the field. Like, Everybody line up, be a round peg in a round hole, and we will win the football game. You don't think about it. You just do it. I tell you what to do. You do it to the letter, and we win football games. And everybody had to exist in that structure, and anybody that wanted to be the nail that stuck up didn't get hammered down. They got shipped off, right? There's a Patriots way. If you don't want to subscribe to the Patriots way. It's my way or literally the highway. You will go, right? It was this iron-fisted, my way, it works, follow the program to the letter, and we will have success. And that final play in Vegas is that just going to hell. It's firecrackers and confetti, right? It's just, you know, random chaotic events occurring, and it is so anti-Belichick, anti-Patriots over the last 20 years, that the stark relief in my head was, now imagine somebody from those programs in those years just going, oh, hell, I'm going to throw it. I'm going to whip it back to Tom, and he's going to run 50 yards unassisted for the touchdown. 
they would have gotten the ass chewing of the century. They wouldn't have seen the field for the next three weeks, and they'd be lucky if they were a Patriot the next season. Now it's like, I don't know, I guess we'll line up next week and see if we can do it again. Like, lack of institutional control has exerted its dominance over the 2022 Patriots, and I'm with you. I don't know what you keep and what you let go, what's going to happen in the offseason. It'll be fascinating to see because if there is any attempt by Belichick to say something he said a million times before, my business, I'll figure it out. We'll just run it back, right? I don't think – I think he's the, the, out of The trust is gone. Chips. I think yeah. he's out of chips for that particular play. The house is going to say, sir, do you have the cash to back that? Like <laughs> it's not going to work out for him because it has been so bad and so different. And the result is starkly different on the field because of it. At least it was fun to watch, which is why we have it in one fun. Well, fun yeah. for me, just because fun, fun for us, it. because it's wildly different. Uh, by the way, that Chandler Jones uh, stiff arm <laughs> has been nominated in our next and favorite segment of the week. The bootleg shot of the week. All right, EJ, uh, for my shot of the week this week, as the sun goes down behind me, because we started this podcast a little later than we normally do, uh, I have Rittenhouse. Uh, I think it's just the normal Rittenhouse 100 proof. Not as hot as you think it would be. It actually goes down pretty smooth for a, for a semi-heavily proof rye. What do you got for us? Oh, the classic. And uh, I might need to go get just a little bit more of it because yeah. we're, not, we're almost out. But Jameson Black Barrel my one of my favorite goes to certainly something around the holidays that uh i have around but it seemed appropriate and uh yeah we've got a pretty well pretty smooth pretty rough operator who was the winner this week but either way it's gonna fit trey smith uh smooth if you love him rough if you hate him <laughs> i'm pretty sure justin simmons hates him because uh he damn near decapitated him as our winner of this week's shot of the week honor. Uh, always a great week when we can get offensive linemen involved, uh, and especially offensive linemen when they get to go up against DBs in space that sacrifice like 100 pounds against them in space. Uh, it's not a fair matchup, but we don't want it to be. So Trey Smith, to you, sir, one of the best guards in the entire National Football League and a killer out there. Cheers to you, sir. Mm, God, Rittenhouse is good. And it's not even that expensive. People that, people ask me all the time, like, what's like a rye to recommend to get into rye? Rittenhouse, man, can't go wrong. Well, I go back to this all the time because it's... If you don't like regular Jameson, try Black Barrel. I know that doesn't sound right. <laughs> it It is a very different tasting whiskey. And if something about Irish doesn't get you going... Try this because it's it's closer to a smoother bourbon, like a cask finished bourbon, but it still has some of the original characteristics. It's just a different beast, and it's lovely stuff. You lost me. It doesn't like Irish. I've never met anybody who doesn't like Irish, and if you don't like Irish, I don't want to be your friend, quite frankly. Well, it's true. I'm not <laughs> sure that we can be friends if you don't like Irish because, but. You know, all, all it's of like this. drinking shortbread. Like, how do you hate it? Yeah, gestures wildly at everything. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I made coffee frosting, and it slaps. And somebody <sighs> was like, "What have you been eating it on?" And I was like, don't, "Well, don't do this short, to me, Jay. Don't shortbread do this to cookies." Me. Oh, 
Yeah, you take a sh- take take a shortbread cookie and put some chocolate or coffee frosting on it. It is delicious. Oh, okay. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight. Please uh-huh. send me a recipe. Oh, it's super easy. That's my favorite part. Is it's super easy. My, my family has like a hundred ten year old shortbread recipe. That's like oh, just take like eighty percent butter, and that's that's it. But that's all Un- you need. Unfortunately, that's what the frosting is. But who cares? <laughs> it's just butter with a little flavor. Um. All right. Let's get to this week's nominees. Uh, first up, how could we not include this? Kayvon Thibodeau. Not that this was like his breakout game because he's been pretty good for a while now since he's like fully healthy now but uh in terms of like national exposure i think this was the game where people were like oh uh cave on thibodeau working out so far top five pick well spent uh yeah he was kicking the absolute shit out of the commander's offensive line and this strip sack early in the game uh for a touchdown actually ended up being the difference in the game um like this was the play of the week i would say uh just an incredible speed to power rush shortening the corner um and you know kind of ripping through and finishing for a strip sack and then he got the trifecta not only did he force the fumble he picked it up and scored with it hell of a play from Kayvon Thibodeau probably going to be on his highlight reel till the end of his career in how many ever years that happens to be uh option number two Parker Hesse I, I don't think we've ever said his name on the podcast before Mm-mm. but here he is blocking the soul out of Alante Taylor uh, on a toss play to, to Tyler Algier, bootleg favorite. Uh, huge, huge run and a huge, huge collision with Alante Taylor, who, even though he's a DB and he's much smaller, super feisty kid. Really tough physical. Kid. Physical, physical defensive back was the first word in his scouting profile out of Tennessee. Physical. Yeah, Loves putting him hit. on his ass, not, not easy. Uh, Joe Thomas, not that Joe Thomas. We're talking about the Bears' Joe Thomas. Uh, option number three the other other yeah other Other there's like four of them but anyway uh squared up jalen hurts in space and took him down giving up no yardage uh through contact which against jalen hurts is really hard to do because he squats a small tractor trailer so being able to kind of match him up in space and take him down uh no small feat big hit from joe thomas number four chandler jones of course Perhaps the stiff arm of the year, considering the circumstances. Uh, and one of the best, most iconic images of the year. Like, just him kind of taking Max head and slamming it in the ground. Uh, really, really one of the most joyous plays I've seen this entire season. And then option number five, closing it out. Josh Allen, not the quarterback, the edge rusher, getting a little bit of revenge on C.D. Lamb and wide receivers everywhere who uh, who love to get little cheap shots when they do these little chips and releases uh well within five yards he can uh, he can blow you up too so cd coming off motion was about to run a little shallow cross josh allen firmly put him on his ass and said no sir you are going nowhere and uh i loved it he wasn't targeted on the play obviously because he was on the ground but i'm sure josh <laughs> allen loved that because he was on the ground this is payback this is one of those fascinating little football oh yeah you wanna so you come off and get all those little crack blocks on our shoulders uh misdirection run plays trying to get out of our vision and blowing us up as as we're trying to make our way into the backfield yeah so you come into this five yard zone here and think you're gonna get a little rub i'm bigger than you nah no rub for you today So uh, if any of those options tickles your fancy, please feel free to drop your vote in the pinned comment below. We had a shit ton of votes last week. 
hoping to beat it this week. So if you're watching the video version of the show over on YouTube, please go do that. And uh, with that, final segment of the week, our week 16 watch list. Uh, We have some really, really important games on the docket when it comes to playoff seeding or even just making the playoffs in general. EJ, take it away. Week 16 already here. Crazy. Seems like it's blown by. A lot of action between week 0 and 16, but plenty more to come before the playoffs are decided. First game up, Seahawks-Chiefs. This one is NFC versus AFC, but it has, again, implications for both teams as to whether or not they can take a lead, hold a lead, make the playoffs, do it strongly, all that. Uh, Also a fascinating matchup schematically and personnel-wise, so that's why it tops the list. Second up, Commanders 49ers. This one is fascinating from the standpoint of Kyle Shanahan's run game, which is great and awesome to watch on a weekly basis going up against a dominant defensive line of the commanders overall we'd think the 49ers are going to win this one with the hot streak they commit on but the commanders could be sort of a stumbling block in their way because of the way they match up with some of the 49ers best strengths eagles cowboys we don't get jalen hurts in this one so it takes a little bit of the shine off it but people have been talking about this game certainly in philadelphia at least for a couple of weeks due to comments from one micah parsons uh we'll see how the matchup actually stacks up nfc east tilt that has again implications for how or where people get into the playoffs and the fascinated by game this week is lions panthers the offense that's scoring for the lions the defense that's rounding into form and the panthers that have just sort of adopted an identity of this is what we do and we do well you know we're coming with it can you stop it is a big test for that now developing defense of the lions so it'll be a really interesting result to see if the lions can just keep rolling and blow them out or if the panthers might give them more of a game than you thought on paper when it comes to Lions Panthers specifically, uh, I think we we mentioned this on the show last week that you know if you can stop the Panthers from doing the one thing they want to do, which is run and run and run, and then stop the run on there, and if you can kind of take it to them and out physical them, they don't have any other punch. Like they can't really, you know, go vertical on you. They can't really, like, you know, go one dimensional like how Dallas did, where the you know run was getting less than four yards per carry, but Dak was. You know, going over the top and shredding them and everything like that. They really only have one way to win. And the Steelers outdid them in that department. They stopped the run, like viciously stopped the run. Yep. And then they mounted, I think it was a 21-play drive at like the beginning of the third quarter. Just, just I mean, three yards in a cloud of dust for 10 minutes. And they really took it to them. And they out-Panthers the Panthers. And that's a, a large reason why they won that game. Marcus Allen sure tried to give it back to him, but they they out Panthers the Panthers. Did you see that by the way? Which one? The Marcus Allen penalty? No. Okay. Oh, you're gonna love this. Oh, will I? <laughs> the <laughs> dumbest penalty I've ever seen. I mean, dumb in, oh. in terms of like bad flag. I mean, dumb in terms of like what the player did. So this is a guy who like I'd say plays most of his snaps on special teams at this point. Um, and it was after, uh, I think it was after a Cam Hayward sack, right? And he walks over to the Panthers huddle and with the coaches on the sideline, he walks over to where the coach is, I think it was Steve Wilkes, is <laughs> like talking to Panthers players. He walks into the huddle and just joins them and sits in there with them and just like, hey guys, how you doing? And then he gets a 15-yard penalty and the Panthers 
keep their drive going. And it's 21 to 7 in the fourth quarter. I'm like, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> it was yeah. the dumbest penalty I've ever seen. Welcome it, back. It was to, like fourth and 19. <laughs> yeah, welcome back to Pop Warner comedian. It's not so funny in the NFL. Oh my God, it was so bad. But, you know, luckily the Steelers got past that because the Panthers are the Panthers and they, they out Carolina. Carolina. And uh, we'll see if the Lions could do that too. Um, they're, it's, I think I, I think it's going to be a Jamal Williams type of game because I think they, they really will just try to out-physical them. I mean, Dan Campbell's always going to try to out-physical you, but that's what this game feels like to me. And then so, uh, Eagles-Cowboys, even though we're not getting Jalen versus the Cowboys defense again, I still feel like these teams are going to meet in January anyway. So we'll settle it there. We'll, we'll settle Micah's words there. Uh, Commanders 49ers, this one has a whole lot of implications because the Commanders, because they lost mm-hmm. last night, are they their playoff odds tanked from like 80% yeah. to like 35% somewhere around there. This is an absolute must-win game, unfortunately against the hottest team in the NFL. So that's rough for them. We'll see if they can pull it off. And Seahawks-Chiefs, th- this is like the, the Chiefs' last major hurdle. If they can get past the Seahawks without dropping this game, I feel pretty decent about them uh, getting the first seed. But again, this game is super important, especially over in Cincinnati, because as we mentioned, if they lose this, Cincinnati opens the door to potentially host the playoffs here. So uh, lots of really, really, really intriguing games. Um, Before we get to our our Thursday stream and all that, uh, what do you got coming over on Bears Over Beers? We're coming back after a two-week hiatus. We took one week off for the bye week, and then JB was sick last week, couldn't talk, so we took another week off. It'd be good to get back on the horse. Uh, It's kind of a reset to say, okay, with where the Bears are at this particular moment in the season and who they have left, because they did suffer some significant injuries yesterday, what's on the slate, really, for the last three weeks. Like, what does it look like? What can we expect? Is it anything? Should they sit Justin? There's been a lot of call for that with all the injuries that he receives. He got up from being dinged yesterday. In fact, some of the players from the Eagles said, man, that guy's guy's got a lot of fight in him, uh, which he's always had since college. But that stuff does add up, and do you just want to keep the mileage off him? Have you already seen what you need to see? We'll talk about some of those questions, some of those players. What do you got coming up on Film Room? Uh, so I think I'm working on a Nick Bosa episode right now as a complimentary piece to my Brock Purdy episode. Uh, if there was ever a time for the Commanders to win, it's probably when I'm doing two 49ers videos. Feels so, about right. Feels about right to me. So I, I got one on the offense coming out this week over on the NFL channel on Brock Purdy and then one on my channel on Nick Bosa and how uh, he dominates absolutely everybody in front of him, which he does every single week. And uh, yeah, other than that, pretty wide open week for me and then i think i'm taking the next week after that off from film room just as like a mental reset because i've been doing it way too many hours on this uh over the last few weeks so i'm taking taking christmas week to kind of you know not work to make shortbread cookies to make shortbread cookies with coffee frosting and then i'll be back in january obviously uh we want to thank all of our executive producers for bootleg football marat consti caden andrew Taylor, Liam, Connor, Joey, and Mike. We appreciate all of you immensely and the support you give to the show. If you are also interested in becoming an executive producer over on Patreon, that is linked down below, or even one of the other tiers on Patreon to help support the show, uh, that would be an incredible help. 
to, to help us keep doing this uh, full-time professionally, hopefully forever. So uh, thank you all for watching and listening. We'll see you on Thursday for the TNF live stream. And until then, later. Take care.